Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. The titles authors choose for the chapters in their books are signposts, and that is certainly the case with Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence by my guest, General James Clapper. Chapter names include Benghazi, Snowden, Unpredictable Instability, The Election, Facts and Fears, all subjects that Jim Clapper has firsthand knowledge. We know that Mr. Clapper served as Director of National Intelligence from 2010 to 2017, but unless you watched his confirmation hearings, you may not know that he had a long and distinguished career in the military, beginning as an enlisted Marine Corps reservist and retiring as a three-star Air Force Lieutenant General and Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. His retirement from public service was interrupted when just three days after 9-11, he became Director of the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, a position he held until President Obama tapped him to take on what some have called the second most thankless job in Washington. In addition to writing, he is also a regular contributor to CNN. Welcome and congratulations on your book. I understand that it's number three now on the New York Times bestseller list. And number one on Amazon, I just learned. so. But thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to tell you that I've read your book. It was a wonderful way to spend Memorial Day weekend. And I really want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Facts and Fears. You know, you mentioned this in the book, and as an intelligence professional, you really spent most of your career in the shadows, staying out of the limelight. And writing a book, probably in your retirement, was not on your bucket list. Why the change? Well, you're right. I had not planned to write a book, even though people had urged me, just as a historical treatise, having lived through 50 years plus of intelligence. But what motivated me, what the catalyst, what changed my mind, was the election campaign, the run-up to the election, the election itself, and the aftermath. Mm -hmm. What really disturbed me, I've seen a lot of bad stuff in intelligence over the years, what really disturbed me was understanding I gained, the insight I gained, and the, the magnitude of what the Russians did to meddle in our very important political process of elections. And that was disturbing, and I felt I needed to try to do my little part to try to educate the public about the threat the Russians posed. And, and their involvement really began a long time ago, didn't it? I mean, it's not something that just focused on the election, and it was not designed just to elect President Trump as no, sometimes. No, uh, Russia, the Russians have a long, going back to the Soviet era, a long history of interfering in elections, theirs and other people's. And we have records going back to at least 1960, if not before, the heyday of the Cold War, where the Russians tried to engage themselves in our election process and influence it. But never, never as direct and aggressive and as multifaceted, multidimensional as what they did in the election in 2016. Did we focus, and this is something Michael Hayden talks about in his book, and I want to get your thoughts on that. Did we focus too much on the threat of cyber terrorism and perhaps not enough on information and propaganda? Well, I think Mike's point is right. I think we disproportionately, it's understandable, but we disproportionately spent too many resources for too long on counterterrorism. Now, it's understandable why that's so. Counterterrorism was the biggest single claimant than any other target uh, that the intelligence community faced, more so than Russia, China, or any other. We spent more money on counterterrorism than any other. And I 
I came to the conclusion that that was wrong and we needed to right that balance and focus more on what I think are the true threats, which short-term Russia, long-term China. Intelligence is, as you say, a game of percentages, and successes are rarely, if ever, celebrated. How do you see the role of intelligence today when there is so much talk about the need for transparency and protection of our individual liberties? You raise a great question here, uh, Jim, and this, this came into very clear focus for me in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations. Clearly, while he did a lot of damage, I think one lesson I took away from that, in fact, the key lesson I took away from that experience was the need for intelligence to be more transparent. If there was any, any hope of restoring or gaining the faith, trust, and confidence of, of the American people. Now, the problem for intelligence, the cross we have to bear, is that what we do is inherently secret. Because we absolutely must protect sources, methods, techniques, tradecraft. And so we can't be fully transparent. And that always, for as long as I've been in intelligence, always raises an aura of suspicion, of mystery, because people can't know completely what we do. That's why there's such a heavy burden on the two oversight committees in the Congress, one in the House, one in the Senate, who have to act as surrogates for the American public to make sure that what the intelligence community is doing is legal, moral, ethical. But we're always going to have that challenge of transparency. I set about to declassify a lot of documents, particularly pertaining to the operations of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, because that is a legal nexus of foreign intelligence collection and civil liberties and privacy. Well, it certainly makes it harder to do that now when you have a president that is accusing the intelligence community of being part of a, a witch hunt. Right, or Nazis, or part of the deep state, a term I never heard of until this administration. There is no deep state. When I called President-elect Trump on the 11th of January of 2017, after he characterized the intelligence community as Nazis, I tried to impart to him that he was inheriting a national treasure in the form of the intelligence community. Dedicated men and women around the world, some of whom were taking great personal mm -hmm. risks and live in very bad conditions in order to keep the nation safe and secure. And they are committed and dedicated to providing as much information as they possibly can for the very tough decisions that he's going to have to make. I don't think that message got through to him. <laughs> you know, as I said when I introduced you, the position of DNI has been, until you took it, really a revolving door. In hindsight, do you think it's the best structure? Would you make any recommendation to alter it in any way? For the United States of America, I do feel that the arrangement we have as awkward as it might be and not possibly consistent with what a Harvard Business School graduate might design, I do think it's best and it balances the uh, professionalism, the expertise, and the capability that we need with, I think, civil liberties and privacy. There was discussion in the run-up to the what's called the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, which was an outgrowth of the 9-11 Commission that President Bush signed into law on the 17th of December 2004, a lot of discussion in the run-up to having creating a Department of Intelligence, just taking all the those 16 components mm. of the intelligence community and crashing it together into one juggernaut department. For lots of reasons, we and good reasons, that wasn't done, and I don't think that would be in the best sense of the country. I think that the notion of a juggernaut, all-encompassing intelligence single intelligence organization like that would pose a real specter of threat to civil liberties and privacy. So I think the arrangement mm -hmm. we have, as inefficient as it might be, is, is best for us. You know, one of the things I found particularly interesting in your book was you're talking about the different 17 agencies, and our listeners have a vague idea, or probably a good idea, of DIA, NSA, CIA. 
But you were head of what was one time called the National Imagery and Mapping Agency. Right. You changed the name to it to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Give our listeners a sense of what it does and perhaps talk about the work that it did, particularly after the downing of the Malaysia Airlines right. Flight 17. Well, the National Imagery and Mapping Agency grew out of actually uh, complaints that General Schwarzkopf lodged in the wake of Desert Storm where he complained loudly and appropriately about uh, the poor imagery intelligence support he got. So there was a lot of studying and arguing about uh, what to do about that. And in 1996, Congress enacted the law creating what was then called the National Imagery Mapping Agency, which brought together the Defense Mapping Agency, Mapping, Charting, and Geodesy in the Department of Defense with the imagery and imagery intelligence and imagery analysis components of mainly CIA and DIA and created this new agency, which was very painful, very traumatic. What it does is basically proceeds from the thesis that everything and everybody's got to be someplace. So it's all about location, 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 like in real estate. Mm -hmm. And so what NGA now is that it was morphed into, now called the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, is the senior intelligence component for imagery intelligence. In other words, looking down at, at the globe using our very capable overhead satellite constellations, the government ones which are fielded and operated by another intelligence organization, the National Reconnaissance Office. Hmm. And one of the neat things about NGA is it's probably the most transparent of all the intelligence agencies. They do a lot of unclassified work, particularly in a domestic context. So one of the long-standing responsibilities of NGA is support to FEMA and other elements like the Coast Guard, the Department of Homeland Security after a natural disaster. Floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, and what NGA does is give that overview for responders and planners where to react, where is the most pressing need, and when you get the big picture from the sky, it makes it uh, really facilitates support to recovery from such natural disasters. Yeah, Every special yeah. event we have in, in, the, in the United States, World Series, Super Bowl, any big event like that, NGA is always there, present, supporting the local, state and local, and tribal law enforcement and first responders. Fascinating. We have just another minute or two, and I want to ask you to comment a little bit about sort of the gotcha mentality in Washington. You were caught in it a few times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's really interesting how in the book you talk about a, a few of these instances and before various Senate committees. But I want you to talk about Libya where it was the Benghazi, and you wrote a whole chapter on it, it never ended. How do we change that culture of gotcha? Because it hasn't always been the case. Yeah, the issue for intelligence, at least for me, was the intelligence community in an ideal world would stay out of the politics. We just report the facts, and we tee up the best information we can come up with for policymakers. And the problem here is, well, it started with the talking points, but Rapidly, a situation like that became very, very politicized. It became a weapon for one party to use against the prospective Democratic nominee for president. And so we had not one, not two, but eight separate congressional investigations, most of which weren't really interested in defining the truth. They wanted to grind in a political axe, and of course the intelligence community was caught in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. So it's a very unfortunate situation it unfortunately is becoming all too typical of th the way things are done in Washington. And I also think that's an example of why many people in this country became very frustrated, in fact, angry at 
the dysfunction in Washington. And Benghazi is a, to me, is a classic case textbook example. We know the State Department's lost a lot of senior diplomats for a variety of reasons. How's the intelligence agencies doing? Are they experiencing some hemorrhaging? No, they're not. The intelligence community actually has uh, experienced growth uh, since I left. More money, and uh, I think I, I think even some more people. So now there is attrition, as there always is. Mm-hmm. What the intelligence community challenge from a personnel standpoint has not been in recruiting; it's been in retaining, specifically a certain skill sets like uh, anything to do with cyber. So that's been a challenge. But State Department hemorrhage was caused by other reasons, and that's one of the reasons why I actually welcomed the appointment of Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State, because knowing him as I do, I can't see him continuing to preside over the dismantling of the State Department. In fact, he's already taken action to reverse that. Right. Following the San Bernardino shooting, Apple and the FBI were locked into what became a legal battle about encryption. Eventually, the FBI must have figured out how to do it because they said they didn't need Apple's help anymore. But what agreement might be reached to provide privacy but also give the government access? You raise a great question, and it's one that is we left unresolved. I say we, the last administration, and that is the issue of encryption. This is one of the, uh, by the way, one of the implications of Snowden because commercial encryption got accelerated by about seven years by virtue of Snowden's revelations. So where we thought we'd be about 2020, it was instantly accelerated. So now you have a proliferation of secure apps, WhatsApp and those kind of things, Mm -hmm. where we can't read these encrypted communications. And of course, terrorists, criminals gone to school on that. So we're, in my opinion, and I come from a constituency that you expect, uh, I think the country's in a bad place. Where we, typically, we have found a compromise, a way to balance, but unfortunately, we've fallen into absolutist positions. You know, there's, there's no compromise whatsoever for privacy. The solution we were discussing, which I, I think there is uh, some prospect for this, is a system of key, I believe, a system of key escrow, meaning you divide up the encryption key in, into, say, three different pieces. And uh, those three pieces would be held by independent entities, and you'd have to get a court order to go to each one of those three entities, and they'd have to agree that the court order was valid, and then you unite the encryption, and then you, you could read the cell phone. But there's been some debate about, but there are some, always some number of cell phones involved in felony investigations that the FBI uh, cannot break into. It's particularly crucial for law enforcement. Those are the most compelling arguments, I mm-hmm. think. And I hope at some point we find a compromise, which we used to be famous for in this country, that will both protect civilities and privacy and also afford appropriate law enforcement. Finally, what does truth to power mean to you? Truth to power means conveying the facts, and this is, I'm speaking of this in an intelligence context, conveying the best facts available, the, the best truth that we can come up with, which may not be perfect. You know, the whole purpose of it, why does anybody do intelligence? In the end, it's to reduce uncertainty. Rarely can you eliminate it for a decision maker, but you can reduce it. You want to provide that decision maker the best information that you can, whether that decision maker is sitting in the Oval Office, or if I could stretch the metaphor, an Oval Foxhole. And it's imperative that the intelligence community continue to convey that truth power, even if power chooses to ignore the truth. But that is a 
to me, a fundamental hallmark of the intelligence community. Director Clapper, thank you so much for being our guest. The book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truth from a Life in Intelligence, it's really worth reading. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.